Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Before we dive into this month's episode, I want to say thank you for joining us. I sincerely hope that you find it to be helpful and informative for your clinical practice. And I want to remind you that you can go to ebmedicine.net, where you will find our three journals, Emergency Medicine Practice, Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice, and Evidence-Based Urgent Care, and a multitude of other resources like the EKG course, the laceration course, interactive clinical pathways, just tons of information to support your practice and help you in your patient care. And now let's jump into this month's episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Amplify. It is me, Sam Ashu, and on the other side of the microphone, Dr. T.R. Eckler, back, jacked, and ready to talk about constipation. That's right. We are dealing with the March 2024 Emergency Medicine Practice article on the Emergency Department Evaluation and Management of Constipation, one of Dr. Eckler's favorite topics, I will say. So can't wait to hear the stories we're going to discuss today. It's actually a lot more prevalent than you may think. 1.3 million visits to the ED a year for constipation. And this particular article encompasses the entire spectrum of constipation. So everything from the benign to stercoral colitis to bowel perforation, we are going to discuss it all today and hopefully teach you something because I dare to say I learned something about constipation from reading this article. There's a lot of stuff that we do that is probably useless. And there are some things that we should be doing that are helpful that we don't like to do very much. And so let's just dive right in. When we talk about constipation, interestingly, the American College of Gastroenterology says about somewhere between 8 and 12% of adults in the U.S. suffer with this problem from chronic constipation. So that's one in 10 adults out there have a problem with this already. And some systematic reviews have shown a prevalence of about 14%, so maybe even a little bit higher than one in 10 who will suffer from this. And fascinating, the cost of treating constipation is somewhere between two and $7,500 per patient per year. So we spend in healthcare between $2,000 and $7,500 a year per patient on constipation. That's, that number didn't crazy. really blow me away that much. The next number knocked me to the floor. $5 million are spent globally on laxatives. As of 2019. And I'm sure since COVID, that number has gone up because nobody is eating better and exercising more and having regular bowel movements more now than they were then. So, so true. More than $5 billion a year go into that little aisle in the drugstore of what medicines can help you get more regular. Crazy. There were 500,000 visits to the ER in 2006 for constipation. And by 2017, we were at 1.3 million. So the number is actually going up and it's a problem that's becoming more prevalent over time instead of less prevalent, despite access to all of these over-the-counter therapies, which is just nuts. And that just underscores the importance for the topic. Thank you to Dr. Richardson, Christopher Richardson, for being the author for this and doing such an outstanding job with the research and all of the information supplied in the article that we're going to discuss today. 
jumping into etiology and pathophysiology. Interestingly, when we talk about normal bowel movements, one of the things we're supposed to ask is how has it changed for you from your normal schedule? And when we talk about what's a normal schedule for bowel movements, there was a survey in 2018 of all just under 5,000 adults in the United States, and they found that normal varies anywhere from three times a day to three times a week. So that's the spectrum for normal bowel movements and the range. And when we're talking about constipation, we're talking about outside that spectrum, but certainly outside of the norm for the patient. And constipation is predominantly a disorder of the large intestine, no shock there, right? Anatomically, that proximal colon is really just a storage reservoir and has some motor activity to mix digestive contents. And then the, the sigmoid and rectal area is just the, the conduit for delivering stool. But frequently where we're going to see them in the emergency department is with a problem in that specific area. The differential diagnosis for constipation was pretty large. And really, I think what the author was trying to drive home for us on this was if you're considering constipation, you just need to make sure they don't have anything more serious going on. Priority number one is make sure they don't have some kind of small or large bowel obstruction, ogilvy pseudo-obstruction, a volvulus. They listed spinal cord injury in there as well, which it may not be traumatic. It could be spinal cord impingement that's causing this kind of thing, but just making sure that you have a very large differential diagnosis for the bad things and making sure they don't have one of those before you say it's just benign constipation. They talked about in the beginning of the article how the constipation is one of the most disliked emergency physician complaints and how patients with constipation tend to wait longer than patients with other complaints because I think that very quickly there's a certain aura around a patient with constipation of, oh, that doesn't really need to be here. A lot of emergency physicians will just, they move on to something else they think they can do. But this is something where the nuance is so important and if you have that concern for the rare things and the scary things, you're going to catch stuff in a really good history in these people. You're going to find a cancer that's developing because their bowel habits are changing. You're going to catch kids that have something that's going on where you can go through and you can fix this problem. It's not the some of the challenging, unfixable problems that we have. So I really thought this was incredibly written. And I thought that the, the right here in differential, we did a great job of kind of focusing on what the job of the emergency provider is, which is always to think bad first. What is the thing about this constipated person that's going to kill them? And what's the thing that I really got to be worried about? And that stuck with me more than anything else. So that when I see that constipation complaint on the board, I'm going to be thinking, okay, how can I make sure that this person isn't going to go really? I, I always like to say go meep because I, I think that's the biggest job of the ER doctor is to, to make sure that you find a way to stop someone from something really bad getting there. Yeah, I will tell you, this is one of my least favorite complaints. I might even prefer a nosebleed to constipation. I, I do not like doing rectal examinations on patients. I don't like disimpacting patients. And the irony of it is, as you said, these are people who are usually deemed to be lower acuity. So I'm normally having this conversation in a hallway, in a curtain area, maybe in part of the waiting room. It's and, and then you're going to go, I can't really tell. We have to do this rectal examination. Now we have to find somewhere to do it because you're sitting in the waiting room and this is not an appropriate place to do it. I have a great dislike for these complaints. But this article did give me a new appreciation for some of the subtleties that we do in our normal practice, we don't really think about. They come in with abdominal pain and now 
we do consider things like, do you have appendicitis? Do you have an ileus? Do you maybe have pyelonephritis or, or some kind of diverticulitis? And that's what's causing your symptoms. And now I need to run down that pathway before we just blame this on constipation. And the number of times that people have come in saying they have diarrhea and it turns out they have a fecal impaction and they're just leaking around the impaction, I, I can't even count the number of times I've seen that as well. So it's definitely not a run-of-the-mill diagnosis when it comes to the patients we see in the ED and frequently ends up requiring some further investigation. There are some, as always, outstanding tables, which kind of summarize some key points. Table two, there are medical conditions associated with increased constipation risk, lists things that you should consider in the history when you're talking with a patient. Certainly, there's the anatomical things like colon cancer, peritoneal metastases, strictures, adhesions from prior surgery, and then anal fissures or hemorrhoids. We don't really think about that normally when we're thinking about constipation, but certainly that can give the patient the discomfort and cause them to become constipated. There are some endocrine and metabolic things like diabetes, hypothyroidism, and uremia, rheumatological things, amyloidosis, and scleroderma. I did not realize scleroderma was actually associated with constipation. Neurological disorders, Parkinson's disease, especially if they're on medications. We'll get to that in a second. Spinal cord injuries and multiple sclerosis. Again, if you see a patient with MS, you don't really usually think constipation. You're thinking major neurological deficits, but certainly can occur. And then other conditions like if they're post-op and they have an ileus, if they have cognitive impairment, and if they're immobile, just immobility by itself is a risk factor for constipation. So lots of things to think about with that diagnosis. And then the medications. I I know you always like to talk about how great the tables are. And sometimes I'm like, ah, that was a pretty good table, Sam, but I don't think it's great. Table three is the first table that I have wanted to read myself in a long time because the medicines on here that cause constipation, a number of them was a complete news flash to me that starting this medication for a patient could be the trigger for their constipation. I think I give Zofran out all the time and I don't regularly tell people, oh, but this could make you constipated. And more and more, I've begun to appreciate that, especially in pregnant patients and in younger patients, that then leads to constipation. And I think I need to make that more of something that I take that extra five seconds to say, hey, and if you get constipation, then consider trying this over-the-counter medicine or something like that. Um, yeah, making it like the perfect drug for the viral gastroenteritis. Right? Like, we got to slow things down from above and below. Here's some Zofran. But if that's not an intended side effect, absolutely got to have that discussion. I definitely think about opiates when I think about causing constipation with medicines, but I don't think about NSAIDs. And I think NSAIDs. there are some people that no this idea. does slow them down. So that's something. It's crazy. I just had this discussion with a family member the other day, and the family member was saying, Oh, I don't like taking NSAIDs. They constipate me. And all I could think of was, That's ridiculous. That's not a known thing. You just drink more water. And then I read this table and go, Oh, oh, it, it is a thing. I didn't have no idea. Anticholinergic agents, I've, I've seen more and more mental health patients recently that will tell me that, that they're on something like a TCA or benztropine and they're having constipation because of that and that they'll come to the emergency department from mental health facilities because they just can't move their bowels. And that's something where maybe you consider trying a different medication or trying to encourage their psychiatrist or somebody to see if there's another medicine that, that they could go to if this is something that's really constipating. Yeah. I don't think about Benadryl causing constipation. Benadryl, yeah. I is on this list. And then Bentol, as you said, for your gastroenteritis patients with their cramping, you give them dicyclamine and that can end up causing some constipation. So it's something for you to make sure that they're aware of. I definitely think about Lasix just because I know that I'm going to be trying to take more water off them. 
but that's something to consider. But beta blockers and calcium channel blockers weren't quickly on my list of things that I was worried about. And clonidine, which I feel like we use pretty regularly for the hypertensive urgency patient in the ER. All the time. Aluminum calcium containing antacids. I use them to constipate people sometimes that have gastroenteritis or, or something like that. And bismuth, I think it's always important when you're given Pepto-Bismol to tell people that can constipate them. And also it's going to turn their stool black because I hate the repeat patient that comes back after I gave them Pepto-Bismol because their stool is black and they're worried that it's bleeding and I caused that and they didn't need a second bill for that. Lithium is Lithium. something I need to think more about because if you don't catch it, it's just such an important drug to know that it's there. Iron supplements. I use a lot of slow fee now because our hematology colleagues say that if you can give them slow release iron, it doesn't cause nearly as much constipation. So that made me feel more, more appreciative of that. Endocrine medicines, pemindronate and alendronate. I'm not thinking about those two as things that are, but as more and more older patients are going to be on those drugs, we got to be ready for that. Amiodarone and carbamazepine were never on my list of constipation meds, but I'm starting those sometimes, or I'm restarting them for patients. And I think that I need to have that in my head. And then, Sir, I'm treating your ventricular tachycardia, but you should know that this might here. constipate you. <laughs> and MAOIs, and then antipsychotics like clozapine, Haldol, Risperidone. Like in this day and age where we give so much of Haldol or something for cannabis hyperemesis or just run-of-the-mill, tough-to-treat nausea and vomiting, it's important to know. And then Parkinson, dopamine agonists, and then oral contraceptives. Neither yeah, oral but- contraceptives. What? Why? I don't understand that mechanism of action, honestly. But again, one another one of those medications I was shocked to see was on the list. Who knew? I didn't know. This article overall just expanded my thinking of asking the patient if they feel constipated. If, like you said, they had hard stool that was initially, and now they just have liquid coming out, that suggests to me that it's still constipation. There's just the constipation got worse. And then what's normal for them and what changed it? If, if you take that little bit of extra time to stay curious about this, there's room for you to do something to fix these people. And this is a very grateful population if you can make their symptoms go away. Seriously, that is so true. Nobody wants to be in the emergency department and certainly no one wants to wait however many hours it is to wait if you come in complaining of constipation and get placed in that low acuity bucket. It's, it's not going to be a pleasant time. And then when you finally get a chance to speak to the person who's going to be treating, you really, you, you know that you, you deserve something that's going to help you get better. And I think this article definitely provides that. Fecal impaction, I think is, in my opinion, probably the easiest diagnosis to make, but does require the rectal examination. I am not a fan of the rectal examination. I love the evidence that tells me that it's unnecessary in most of the time that we do it. Unfortunately, this is one of those presentations where it's still helpful and can provide some information and honestly can be therapeutic if you're going to be disimpacting someone. No way to get around it for this particular complaint, but it is something that is going to be necessary to make the diagnosis of fecal impaction. Interestingly, I thought the, the one thing he quoted here in the article came from a study in a large urban ED of patients with fecal impaction 2016 and 2017. It was 42 visits out of 42 visits, 32 patients required hospital admission, and four patients died while in the hospital from complications attributed to the fecal impaction. So although I look at it as the most bothersome worst diagnosis I could deal with in the emergency department, it does have some 
implications for what might happen to this patient and how sick they might get from this disease if we don't deal with it and get it taken care of pretty quickly, or if we miss it even. I was surprised and, to see that. And people die from this. That's something that I think once that kind of clicked in my head and I heard a story from a co-resident that like they had a patient come in with constipation and a fecal impaction. And even after disimpacting, like things were getting better and the patient perforated and died. And it really made an impact upon them that like, wow. And I would tell you that I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum for fecal impaction. If a patient comes in with fecal impaction, I think that it is a rare circumstance where the government actually pays you quite well to treat that condition because the billing and coding for fecal impactions is, if you relieve that, it, it has a good RVU associated with it. And I would tell you that the patients are so appreciative and I think that so many other providers are going to, I don't want to say duck it, but I think that's the right thing. I think they're going to not mm -hmm. try to go there and do that. Whereas if you, if that patient comes to you and you resolve that problem for them and then you put them on something to help keep them clear now that you've cleared the fecal impaction, some rectal medicine, some oral medicine from the top, that you've now stepped in front of that thing that was going to possibly become life-threatening for them and you've resolved it and they feel so much better. And they're so often old and sweet and grandmothers. And I just find that if it's worth the trouble, I think is, as so few things are in our line of work, that is worth the trouble. I can see it now. A national chain of T.R. Eckler constipation fecal impaction clinics across the nation where oh, we I, will care for you and disimpact you when protocol. no one else will. I've, I've got a fecal impaction protocol. You got to get ready for it. We're not at treatment yet. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Stercoral colitis. Now, this is an interesting diagnosis that I see now on CT scans of the abdomen and pelvis. We see that diagnosis made by radiologists all the time. But interestingly, it's something I didn't see, hadn't even heard of until I started seeing it pop up on CT reports about a decade ago. And stercoral just means a container that's filled with feces. So that's the origin of that name. And the colitis is just inflammation of the colon. So it is a inflammation of the colon around a large ball of feces that's stuck in the lower intestinal tract, and it can cause some significant problems for the patient other than just the discomfort of the constipation. There was a retrospective, most of the stuff is retrospective, but case reports, 41 patients diagnosed over a 10-year period at a hospital in Turkey found that they had significant complications, including abdominal pain, fever, tachycardia, and leukocytosis. But interestingly, in the U.S. in 2023, there was another multicenter retrospective review. This was larger, 269 patients who found that actually most of our patients did not have those vital sign changes. So although the original one from Turkey suggested that if they have vital sign abnormalities and fever, you might be able to make this diagnosis for us here in the U.S., it was primarily made on CT. There was usually some abdominal pain associated with it. 66% were found to have some abdominal tenderness, which kind of pointed you in that direction. But most concerning, 25 presented with complaints that were not obviously related to constipation, and the diagnosis was made during the workup, which is, it's a little bizarre because I think I see now lots of reports, radiology reports with patients presenting with some pelvic discomfort, abdominal discomfort, lower back pain, sometimes upper abdominal pain. And you're thinking, how does this really relate? But we definitely are seeing more of this on CT reports. And this particular kind of colitis can be associated with ulcer formation and perforation and then become a surgical emergency if it's not treated. 
But interestingly, the treatment part of it, and we'll get to that a little later, is, is a little debatable. We don't really have a lot of good evidence on how you treat this. Some people go full-blown sepsis workup, put them in the hospital IV antibiotics. Some people say, nope, just get the stool out of there and then send them home. And it, I think a lot of that just varies depending on the presentation and where they are on that spectrum. But that's a, it's an interesting diagnosis. Are you admitting everyone that has a CT that says dercoral colitis? Or if they have good follow-up and they're not febrile, no white count, you're giving them outpatient GI follow-up and letting them basically follow up as an outpatient if you think they're, they have that potential. Yeah, I think that's the reasonable approach. That's actually the approach that's in the pathway for this article from the author. It was, do they have stercoral colitis? And if they do, were you able to disimpact them, get their bowels moving again? Are they stable and well-appearing? And do they have good outpatient follow-up? And if they do, then they can go home in that scenario. They certainly don't have to be admitted. They're, whether or not they really need antibiotics in that scenario is, I think, still up for debate. There's not good evidence around that. And I think this article does a good job of driving that home. If you think they're septic and you're putting them in the hospital, sure, that's, a, that's an easy decision to make. But if you're sending them home, I don't really know. I don't know that a course of augmentin or something is going to make a difference in this scenario. It's a great question. I don't know that there's good evidence behind that right now. I feel like that in diverticulitis, I'm still feel like I'm in a gray space where I'm not really sure what the right answer is in terms of who really needs antibiotics and who doesn't. And I'm, I'm excited for the future research that's going to come from that because I feel like there's people that want the answer to that question. Yeah, for sure. Pre-hospital care for our EMS providers, this is really just history. If you're picking up a patient from a nursing facility, especially if they have dementia or are going to be a poor historian, trying to obtain that critical piece of history from the staff before you bring them so that you can then relay that to us in the emergency department is probably the single most helpful piece of information you can gather. And that's really just about, did they have any new medications? Did, have they had a change in their bowel habits? Have they been complaining of anything? Have the staff who know this person noticed that there's been a change because the person is usually non-communicative at baseline? So those kinds of subtle historical features are really helpful. Otherwise, most of the patients who can speak to us and give us a good history, there isn't a whole lot that you could get pre-hospital. And hopefully, these are patients who are normally not coming by ambulance unless they're coming from some kind of nursing facility. If there's a big bottle of mag citrate at the bedside that's empty, I'd like to know about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll get into why here in just a second. <laughs> but when it comes to the ED history, you know, keeping a, that broad differential, we're thinking about things like obstruction, volvulus, spinal pathology. We want to know if there's fever, nausea, vomiting, or abdominal pain. We do want to know if there's been recent weight loss or rectal bleeding because sometimes that can portend some kind of GI malignancy that's been undiagnosed and now causing a mechanical obstruction for the patient. So those are good things to ask. And then Things like, was the stool loose or were you constipated with hard stool and now having leaking fluid? Is it not actually diarrhea? Maybe this is encapresis or something of that sort. Those are all good things to ask. History, physical examination, I think is... I don't think you can quickly pass over history without mentioning the, the golden age of supplements that we're in right now. You've got to ask people if they're on herbal supplements, if they're taking new vitamins or if they've got some over-the-counter thing that they've been trying for some treatment or for constipation, because that fits carefully into what you're going to try to do to treat them. And I also like to ask people, oh, you, if you could be constipated, have you tried anything in the past? What works for you? What doesn't? Because j just like they said in, in kind of the initial part that constipation is like pain, it is what the patient says it is where they say it is. I, I think this is the same thing where you have to ask them what are they looking for today? What it, What is the thing that has worked for them in the past for constipation? What definitely doesn't work? And then you fit that into your treatment plan. 
Yeah. Yeah. Have they been doing some kind of colon cleanse product because they think it's going to make them healthier or something of that sort and have destroyed their gut flora because of it. To clear the toxins, Sam. Enemas to clear the toxins. That's right. Part of the T.R. Eckler Foundation of Treatments that's, that you can get at his future clinics. Physical examination, you're looking for pain, abdominal tenderness, the usual things. And then the digital rectal exam, as much as I hate to do it, I think is just almost unavoidable in this scenario. When it comes to diagnostic studies, the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, this is put out every three or so years and kind of details just a whole lot of information about U.S. healthcare utilization and a lot of ED information. It actually showed that most people who come in with constipation into the emergency department do undergo some diagnostic studies. So uh, 47% are getting a CBC, 45% are getting a urinalysis, two-thirds are having some kind of imaging, whether that's an x-ray, about 47%, or a CT scan, 20%. Yeah, two-thirds are getting imaging for constipation. That's a lot. That is a lot. It sure is a lot. It's a lot if you think about the milder spectrum, in which case you don't really need any imaging, and the more severe spectrum where we're seeing a lot of that stercoral colitis based on CT. So we do a lot of CT scanning in the emergency department. And 20% of constipation getting a CT does not surprise me, honestly. We that, do a lot that of I'm okay with because I think the old end of the spectrum, like the older patients, the sicker patients, the cancer patients, the spinal cord injury patients, the dialysis patients, the people that I'm really worried about because their likelihood of bad with constipation, especially if they have any kind of abnormal inflammatory markers or vital signs, that number feels right to me. But 50% of constipations get an x-ray. Yeah, and that x-ray, there is a whole section here on abdominal radiographs, and most of the time, it's unhelpful. Interestingly enough, one review of 481 patients in an emergency department who received x-ray imaging found that they received a diagnosis or treatment that contradicted the report findings on the x-ray. So when the x-ray said they were constipated, they would get diagnosed with something else. When the x-ray said, oh, this is a normal appearing image, they would get diagnosed with constipation. And they found that really it was mostly guided by history and physical. And although imaging was obtained like an x-ray, it was rarely regarded and in 50% of the cases even was contradicted by the ultimate diagnosis. So abdominal radiography in general is just not as helpful. There was a survey, this is a, just a survey, but of pediatric emergency medicine providers, so specific to children, and about half of those respondents said that plain films were unhelpful uh, in the diagnosis at all. And for those who did say that they used them, they thought it aided actually in getting family buy-in for the diagnosis, which, again, is another one of those things you got to be careful about. Uh, I can't say I haven't done this in the past as well. We do this with chest x-rays sometimes as well when you already know the diagnosis, but imaging a child with radiation is just not a great way to get family buy-in and maybe working on some other ways to convince family members. And it's a very difficult scenario. I, I'm preaching to the choir if you're listening to this podcast, but, but we have all been in those scenarios. So interestingly enough, abdominal radiographs, plain films are usually just not going to be helpful in general. CT imaging, on the other hand, can be helpful, especially if you're looking to exclude any one of those multitude of other things on your differential diagnosis, appendicitis, bowel obstruction, malignancy, new metastatic lesions, stercoral colitis, all of these things you're going to see on the CT scan. 
the most common location for that stercoral ulceration and perforation, if you're going to make that diagnosis, is usually in the anterior rectum or the rectosigmoid junction or even the apex of the sigmoid colon. But either way, if you make that diagnosis, that person is usually headed to surgery, getting a lot of peritoneal lavage, and it's a terrible mess once they've perforated. And the goal is to catch it before that. And the reason is that those three areas are watershed regions where there's poor vascular supply. So as that colon gets more and more distended, puts pressure on that area, it really becomes ischemic. And that's how they develop the ulceration and eventually a perforation if you don't do something about it. And you can see those changes on CT. There are actually some pretty good images there in the article in figure two demonstrating what that looks like on CT imaging. There is some advanced testing that the GI guys will do, and we're really not going to get into that. All of that stuff is outpatient, but there are all kinds of things like anorectal manometry, balloon expulsion testing, barium, or uh, magnetic resonance defecography that can diagnose all kinds of refractory problems, but none of that we're doing in the emergency department. I want our readers to note that you tried to duck the word defecatory because you didn't want to do defecatory after you did defec defecography. <laughs> trying to say both of those back to back is quite challenging. I think the important part to take away from this, though, is like always, there's sometimes where you can't get the full answer for the patient in the emergency room. And I think it's important to give them the next step. I think patients that are struggling with constipation that don't have anything emergent that needs to be admitted, you need to give them that pathway like GI is your next step because you might just need a colonoscopy or a flexible sigmoid scope to look and see what things look like. You might need biopsies to diagnose IBS or Crohn's or something else that's causing you to have these issues. Or you need some of these other tests to figure out why you're having these issues. And it's not that there isn't a problem. It's that we need to do more things to figure it out. But your answer is not to come back to the emergency room to get those answers. That's right. That's a great summary. And then when it comes to treatment, so most of the treatment evidence mm -hmm. out there is actually based on societal guidelines. We don't have a lot of good evidence. There are some kind of key points that we're going to pull out from this article that I want to discuss. There's a great table, table four. I'm a big fan of the tables. Comparison of common commercially available constipation remedies. This lists all of the things that are over the counter, what the recommended starting doses, what the recommended maximum doses, and then some comments to keep in mind for most of these things. TR, I'm sure you've got a favorite. What's your favorite over-the-counter go-to? So can I tell you, having been many places in America, I think that my favorite thing about it is that there's always a local homebrew of enemas that the nursing staff in the emergency room believes strongly in, and they're never the same. Like sometimes it's milk and molasses, sometimes it's soap suds, sometimes it's polyethylene glycol. But I've enjoyed how different regions of America have different beliefs about what is the right solution you're supposed to treat constipation and fecal impactions with. And I find that many of these all do work great. Sometimes mixing them together works great. But I think this is one of those times where you need to lean on the wisdom of your nurses and let them tell you what is working really good. And that's going to probably get you more buy-in from nursing to do the challenging work that goes into administering these more than anything else. Yeah, I think that's probably the key point here is whatever the nurse is willing to do is probably the thing that's going to be the most successful. <laughs> and thankfully, we are not the ones who have to administer the enema in this case. Most of these things are really just, it's a liquid you stick into the rectal area and hopefully have the patient retain for as long as they can to try and loosen whatever's in there and then have them have a bowel movement. 
And there are lots of things that are over the counter that you can buy to try. Oftentimes, patients have tried some of these before they come to the emergency department. So making sure that you're not instructing them to go back and do the exact same thing is helpful. That's usually a dissatisfier. There is another table, table five, which we'll get to in just a few minutes about some of the prescription things that can be given to patients. But before we do that, let's just get into some of the treatments for each one of these conditions. Fecal impaction, we talked about already. Disimpaction is going to be your primary goal. And although I like how the author said it in the article, while this may be distressing to both patients and clinicians, it can provide quick relief of a condition that may not improve otherwise. I think that's very aptly stated. So the treatment there is just to disimpact the patient. I have never personally had this happen, but the author does say that the procedure does have the potential to cause a pretty profound vagal response. Mm. And that if you think that the patient might encounter that, there is the option of putting them on a cardiac monitor. That's a consideration, not a standard practice, but something to think about. Have you ever seen that happen while you were disinfecting somebody? Have them vagal? I've seen them get a little bradycardic and a little hypotensive, but I've never had anyone pass out. But I would tell you that I approach these as a procedure. So I tend to approach them as if they're old, if they're high risk, if they have a lot of cardiac issues, I would put them on the monitor. I'd want to have IV access. A lot of times constipated patients, especially older ones that aren't taking in as much fluid, I want them to get IV fluids. So I'm getting access for that. And then I have the added benefit of now I have access if I need it. And then the way that I approach these is this is going to be something that's going to be messy. So I think you should gown up with some sort of a disposable gown. I always try to use long sterile gloves as opposed to the short gloves because I find that it's easier to get as aggressive as you need to clear this out without being worried about where the end of your glove is because the longer gloves really help. I think that sometimes a face shield is indicated given you're not sure how much is going to come out if you release the pressure that's there. And then I think that having multiple layers of chucks ready to go under the patient so you can clear a bunch out then roll it all up in a chuck and throw it in the garbage and then have another basically new layer underneath it. I'll go four or five layers of chucks just because I think that really puts you in a position that it doesn't limit you in terms of how much you can get out if, if you are being successful and, and doing pretty well. And I thought appropriately put, all of these should be done at least with viscous lidocaine, kind of gradually applied to give some pain control. But I'm still in search of the perfect kind of procedural sedation that won't be more constipating for the patient. I'm starting to get interested in pain dose ketamine for this because I think that sedation dose ketamine is probably too much, especially for a lot of older people, but a little 0 0.2, 0 0.3 ketamine. I think this might have some value here. And I was very excited to see ketamine not appear on that list of medications that causes constipation for people. There you go. There you go. I will add that I'm very smell sensitive. So I wear a mask and if there's any Vicks Vapor Rub or anything of that sort available. I'll rub a little bit on the inside of the mask and put it on myself. And that just helps me get through the procedure, honestly, as the person who's having to perform it. Definitely something you want to gown and glove and be protected for. All right, next on the list was treatment for stercoral colitis. And as I mentioned before, there really isn't good evidence. So there's no large studies evaluating the treatment for this. There are some published case series and some systematic reviews that discuss things like disimpacting the person, putting them on a laxative. If it's a very severe case and they have abdominal tenderness or signs of sepsis, that's pretty easy. Sometimes they do require a surgical consultation if you think they have a perforation. But the milder cases, it's really, it's kind of up in the air. I think if they're very stable and you've successfully dealt with the issue, that person can certainly go home. 
Some authors have suggested that treatment with antibiotics directed at the gram negatives and the anaerobic bacteria might be helpful, especially if the person is showing signs of sepsis, because that becomes a mortality risk for the patient if they perforate. But this hasn't really been rigorously evaluated. So there's no good evidence-based recommendations for antibiotic therapy in this scenario. But just something to keep in mind that there's a spectrum of patients with this problem. So depending on where they are on the spectrum, that guides your eventual treatment. Enemas, again, not great evidence comparing different types of enemas. There are a few studies that compared the effectiveness of different solutions, but many of these, as you mentioned, are local guidelines, whatever they use in that hospital in that region. And there was only one ED-based study evaluating enema therapy for constipated adults by Vilk et al., and that was in 214 patients who received milk and molasses enema, which interestingly, in my practice, that's something we just regionally in this area have never used. But in these patients, the milk and molasses enema was about 88% successful in relieving constipation. And the article talks about how that was prepared, but interestingly, it was found to be more beneficial than just a placebo in that scenario. The pediatric literature is more robust in that case and does have head-to-head comparisons of things like soap suds, sodium phosphate, and something called the pink lady. You ever use one of these? This is a combination of docusate, magnesium citrate, mineral oil, and sodium phosphate. It's four things mixed in one. It hit, hit all of them at the same time and found that it was pretty similar across all three groups. All of them showed greater than 90% efficacy in stool output. And, and so there wasn't one that was the shining winner between all of those in the pediatric literature. I think what I took away from this was soap suds can cause more irritation and some epithelial degradation of your rectum. And I think tap water as well had more of that. So I was more inclined to use either something like milk and molasses or sodium phosphate or polyethylene glycol if I was put to it or if it wasn't clear that there was a strong preference from either the patient or from the nursing staff. That's where I would go from these. But I've seen everything used, a lot of milk and molasses, and I would tell you that it all works great. And I think that the big key is just getting the badness out. Yeah, and the sodium phosphate enemas is probably the only one that came with a little caveat saying that if the patient has renal failure or is at the extreme of age, so very old or very young, that this is contraindicated. And specifically, the FDA has a statement saying that it shouldn't be used in children under the age of two years old and in those with chronic kidney disease, the the sodium phosphate, because the phosphate load can be significant in those patients, especially if it's retained for a very long time, which is usually, hopefully not the case, but it can occur. So just one thing to remember when you're dealing with all of these agents, if you're looking at a sodium phosphate enema, if they're under two years of age, or especially if they have renal failure and, and maybe in that severe advanced age where they're more likely to have chronic kidney disease, this is probably not a great item to use and you've got some other choices. Otherwise, there isn't one that works better than the rest. There are some osmotic laxatives, things like polyethylene glycol and lactulose and magnesium salts. And polyethylene glycol is actually widely recommended for the treatment of chronic constipation. And there are lots of expert guidelines that list that particular strategy there's a dosing regimen here in the article, and it has some good efficacy for the chronic constipation refractory cases. Lactulose, which is something I have used for years, is a synthetic sugar. It's not digested. 
it, obviously we use it in the patients who have cirrhosis for other reasons, but all of those patients complain that they have chronic diarrhea. And this is, I think, a good agent, an alternative to use. There was one Cochrane systematic review that found that in comparison, lactulose and polyethylene glycol, that polyethylene glycol is more likely to produce more frequent stools and improve stool consistency and relieve abdominal pain. So if you have the choice between the two, polyethylene glycol is probably actually more effective. But for people with chronic constipation, if they're constantly coming back to the emergency department, this lactulose is certainly an option. Magnesium is often prescribed. Magoxide, magcitrate, magsulfate, all of these things are given somewhere over the counter for people with chronic constipation. And this is one of those things that can become a problem for patients if they're systemically absorbing a lot of magnesium. So individuals with renal impairment who are going to absorb the magnesium and be unable to get rid of it should avoid magnesium-based laxatives because of that sometimes life-threatening risk of hypermagnesemia. So one more of those things to keep in mind. No sodium phosphate enemas in people less than two years of age or in the extremes of age with renal failure and no magnesium products for your dialysis patients. I know I find that this kind of is the order that I look at these things in. I tend to start with polyethylene glycol. I go to lactulose as a second line if they're either not wanting to do polyethylene glycol or they have some issue with it or it's just not doing enough. And then I don't tend to use a lot of magnesium for that reason. But I think what I took away from this is when I'm giving people magnesium supplementation, I need to let them know that things might get a little more aggressive downstream. So that may be another piece that I add to my, all the hypomagnesemic patients I've been repleting recently, I need to give them better advice about this may increase your usual bathroom routine. That's right. There are some of those things that are stimulant laxatives as well. Those are usually available over the counter and they're metabolized in the gut and into some other compounds that increase water secretion. These are things like bisicodal, which come in tablets that you can take daily. They come in suppositories, which you can take as well. Senna is another one which is commonly prescribed, actually, especially with people who are getting post-surgical opioids. That's a favorite of the surgeons, especially in our area. So you will see those as well. And then there are stool softeners. Interestingly, docusate is probably one of the most widely recommended and used agents out there theoretically works as a surfactant and has exactly zero evidence of benefit, which I thought was just, just a classic representation of how things are done in medicine, right? It says, the, the author actually says, despite its wide use, there is poor evidence for efficacy. And studies show that it's no better than placebo and is inferior to psyllium even in promoting bowel movements in constipated patients. It works good as a seruminolytic for earwax removal but that's pretty much all I think that you need to use it for. So I think we need to reconsider this drug as something that goes in your ear and not somewhere else. Bingo. There's your answer. And then there's fiber supplementation. There's two kinds of fibers, the soluble and the insoluble. There's a good discussion in here about when you might want to consider one versus the other, but the author summarizes it by saying it should be noted that there are several types of fiber available over the counter, the psyllium, the methylcellulose, and the dextrin, but psyllium has been shown to be more effective and is recommended over all the other types of available fiber. So if you're going to make a recommendation for just increasing fiber, psyllium is probably your first-line agent there. And that's, again, for people with kind of chronic constipation, that's not the acute impaction that you're going to have to deal with. I think the only thing we didn't address in here was glycerin suppositories, but I like 
bisacodyl or glycerin suppositories for like healthy adults because I think that giving them something from above and something from below, I see more success and less bounce backs if you give them more than one thing to use. And I also think my takeaway was just that healthier patients, pregnant patients, younger patients, I can use more of the kind of stimulant laxatives. And I tend to be more hesitant about using those. And I think that I need to open my mind about their value in younger, healthier patients. But I still tend to avoid them in older, more ill patients that have more complications because I worry about perforation. Yep, absolutely. Pregnant and lactating patients, you know, back when we used to have the categorization of medications, the class B or, or the ones that were known to be safe in pregnancy were things like fiber supplementation and lactulose, but you can use polyethylene glycol, Senna, avoid the docusate in that scenario, just like we said. And then in the pediatric patients, again, less likely to become impacted, but can still have chronic constipation issues. Glycerin suppositories, like you mentioned, very popular in the pediatric population. But polyethylene glycol is just as good as a choice as anything else for the chronic constipated patients. Then there is the special category. So the important category of patients who are on hospice or at the end of their life or even on chronic opioid therapy. I put all three of these in the same category. Most of these patients are getting treatment for pain from their life-threatening terminal disease and are coming to the emergency department with chronic constipation usually having tried everything they can get over the counter without success. And there is a newer category of medications called the peripheral mu opioid receptor antagonists or PAMORA. Uh, and these medications are meant to be given to people who have that refractory constipation that has failed all other treatments that is thought to be opioid induced. They have opioid induced constipation. And although these medications come with a very hefty price tag, they do have good evidence behind them. And some work as quickly as four hours after administration and can be given intermittently as needed. So something to keep in mind, you may not have them available to you in your emergency department. And the, again, the cost associated can be anywhere from hundreds to thousands of dollars per dose of these things. Some are injectable. Some can be taken orally. It just depends on which one you choose. Have you used these in your practice? So we have methyl naltrexone, which is the trade name is Relistor in the emergency department. I have used this when I really feel like someone's got opiate-induced constipation and I don't know if they're going to be able to get an outpatient prescription for something. And if I think they're healthier, younger, and I'm not worried about a perforation, but there is a risk of perforation that comes with that drug. I would tell you that I'm a little more cautious about it. Uh, naloxagol, which is, goes by the trade name Movantic, is something I've used a lot of. And I find that you have to document carefully that the patient has what you suspect to be opiate-induced constipation and has failed multiple other bowel regimens. But if you document that well in your note, I've had a lot of patients get this covered. And I would tell you that it's a wonderful drug because these are patients in terrible pain. And if you can help them move their bowels again, they can take half to a full tablet and it works great. I think it's once a day, so it's not even like difficult to administer, but I, I usually write them for a week or two of it with a couple of refills and see if I can get it covered. And I find that most of the time, especially if you document it well, that they failed other stuff and they're on opiates and they're palliative care or hospice and they really need it, it tends to get taken care of and it works incredibly well. Yeah, and the rationale there is that your typical hospitalization for a patient is going to cost somewhere around $4,000 a day. And this category of medicines costs anywhere from $500 to $2,000 per dose. And so 
if you can reduce the chances they're going to be in the hospital, send them home, you're still saving money, although these things are significantly expensive. So none of them are generic yet. And that is a huge cost to the patient. If you, as you said, can document it and get it approved, that's fantastic. Right now, these are considered last-line therapy once the patient has failed everything else, typically even sometimes seen by GI and getting the, the diagnosis there and the prescription there. But if you could get them covered, they definitely work. And, and they probably actually have a more robust evidence-based set of studies behind them than most of the other over-the-counter things that we use. This is all covered nicely in Table 5, the prescription-only constipation meds, both feeds meds and some of the other new ones. I think this is a great thing to ask about because if they're already on it, it's a really great thing for you to refill because if they've run out of it, this is the kind of medicine where you run out and real things get very backed up very quickly. So if you can restart them, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And especially with your terminal patients, your end of life, your hospice patients or the patients with cancer, that you're, they're not coming off those opioids. That there's no point in telling them to use any of the over-the-counter stuff if they've been on it before and it's been unsuccessful and they've escalated to this therapy already. They just, they need this medication. As always, there's the clinical pathway at the end of the article, which I think does a good job of walking you through that decision-making, whether or not the patient has indications for CT imaging, whether or not the patient has evidence for things like stercoral colitis and how stable are they, and then helping you decide who can go home and who can't, and even make some suggestions about some of the therapies you can use for constipation and ranks them in order. So I think that Dr. Richardson did a great job writing the article and then providing us with the clinical pathway to ease that decision-making and, and make it a little simpler for us. And, and I also think he did an outstanding job with the article itself, just packed with information, and it's such a common diagnosis. And that's a wrap for today. So thank you again, TR, for joining us. Keep it moving, everybody. Keep it moving. <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect. And uh, yeah, so that again, that's the March 2024 Emergency Medicine Practice article. Thank you, Dr. Richardson, Emergency Department Evaluation and Management of Constipation. Just lots and lots of information. Go read it. Go claim your four hours of CME at ebmedicine.net, and we'll see you guys next month. Be safe, everyone. And that's a wrap for this month's episode. Thank you for joining TR and I. I hope you found it educational and informative. Don't forget to go to ebmedicine.net to read the article and claim your CME. And of course, check out all three of the journals and the multitude of resources available to you, both for emergency medicine, pediatric emergency medicine, and evidence-based urgent care. Until next time, everyone, be safe.